Welcome to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. Today on the show, we'll learn what it means to be a member of the LGBTQ community. In the current environment, members of this group may use various pronouns like she, her, he, him, or they may even use a combination of all of them. This group expands beyond traditional gender binary. It's fluid. Years of marginalization and hateful terms are no longer tolerated. The LGBTQ history is a part of our national and local history. You'll hear from those who are leading this movement, their successes and challenges. Later in the show, I'll speak with Heather Mazur, who was the first openly gay person to run for governor and is currently looking to take a seat in Congress. The trans community is constantly under threat. You'll hear from Rain Alexander and her world. Cleo Monago is the interim CEO of the Pride Center of Maryland and will take the temperature of the LGBTQ community. But we kick off our show with Kevin Brown. He's the director at the Station North Arts District and was a longtime Baltimore Sun reporter where he's covered the entertainment in the city and he helps us chart the history of the gay community. Kevin has been chronicling nightlife in Baltimore for eons. <laughs> Seems like it. I'm in my 60s now. Right. Uh, Kevin, you've also watched the gay community change over time. Tell me some of those poignant moments that gave you the aha moment, if you will. I think it started uh, in my own family in the late 70s. Uh, my brother, having returned from the service, uh, came out of the closet. And so it was it was in the family. It was something that was right there in our face. And in the 70s, I say the 70s gays are different from the 2010 to 2021 gays, and that's a 50-year span. In the 70s, the gays were more interested in finding, just finding their voice. That's what the 70s, gay, Birkenstock, bead-carrying, hippie-loving gay person was doing. And in the 80s and 90s, the emphasis switched to HIV, AIDS prevention. You know, that, that hit the community really, really hard. And so everybody's attention through the, through the 70s, I mean, through the 80s and through the 90s, was really focused on HIV, AIDS. That epidemic just took too many people out. And then more recently, I, I would say the gay focus changed to same-sex marriage, uh, gay rights, equal rights, but always based in what I would say overall human rights. Sometimes without the participation of the Black community, intentionally and deliberately, and then sometimes it was needed because even in, even in our community, there's a division. There's white gay and then there's black gay. And, and, and just briefly, I'll say anecdotally, it wasn't until 1990 that there was even a black gay movement. And that basically arose out of black gays wanting an alternative to the white mainstream gay scene that wasn't always as welcoming as uh, our own community was. I note that uh, if you talk to someone in that community, they will always point to stone uh, Stonewall as that moment when the world changed. Is there anything in Baltimore that you knew was like, this world has changed? 
I think when uh, Chase Brexton closed its doors on Shea Street years ago, because the GLCCB, was the Gay and Lesbian Community Center of Baltimore, was started in the 70s. And it was a refuge for gays to go. And there was a bookstore there. And there was a clinic there. And this was in the early days. But it was a gathering space. It was a hub. It was a place where people could be safe. And when that space ceased to be no more, that's when I really noticed that Baltimore's landscape was changing. And I just don't mean bars and nightclubs, but meaning that the gay community was moving towards different ideas. They had different ideas. I'll give you an example. We had a group called Act Up that was headed by John Steuben and his crew. We had a group called Eight Action Baltimore, which was headed by John Waters and Emmy Award-winning uh, casting director Pat Moran and Linda D. So they were all professional society groups trying to raise consciousness and raise awareness about what the gay struggle and what the gay plight was. But it was very compartmentalized, as I remember it, and not so much uh, the big kumbaya that it is now. I know that as we move forward in time, you've already indicated that there was finally a recognition that there were many layers to both the lifestyle and the people who were involved in it. Help the community understand that these people who were in this space, some were recognized and some weren't recognized, and, and what that did to some people. I think those leaders, influencers, early influencers, that really helped uh, compel the, the movement, the idea that there, was, there could be such a thing as gay rights or same-sex marriage or equality Maryland, um, that we could possibly one day have a gay candidate or governor run. All of those um, I call uh, steps in the ladder were laid down by people who understood the plight, I believe, understood the task, understood the mission, and wanted to see it through. And it was hard to do if you were out, I think, a lot of the times, because there was a stain. Let's be very clear. There was a stain about being gay. And a lot of people wanted to go about doing their work with that stain not attached to them. They didn't want to wear that as a moniker. Not that they were ashamed of being gay, which I don't think they were, but they didn't want, it wasn't the badge of honor for them. Their mission, their work, their lifestyle was more important than wearing the badge of gay. I note that, and you know this, that there are some people who have been in the closet. That decision to make, to come out. It's a hard one. Navigate some of the thinking that maybe the general public doesn't know. I'll give you an example. Again, I go back to my own family. Um, I come from a very large family, a very provincial family, 17 children, Catholic, very Catholic in ideals, uh, very Catholic in its ideas about homosexuality. So when homosexuality reared its head in my own personal family, it was dealt with in a way that made me personally afraid to expose my own self. When my brothers came out in the 70s and my father's reaction to it was so eye-opening and hurtful that I ran off and got married. And many gays did go off and get married to avoid the stain of homosexuality. I mean, even here in Baltimore City in the 30s and the 40s, uh, the Afro reported on what was called lavender marriages. And a lavender marriage was a marriage between a man and another man, a woman and another woman, with the understanding that we had outside interests. We were married only in paper only. And these marriages were reported on by the Afro-American newspaper as early as 1930. So the gay community has always been present, but not always visible. Kevin, I, I want to kind of end on, on this, this idea. Help the community understand the navigation that you have to do if you make that decision that this is my lifestyle. 
This is who I am. What's that navigation like? I think you have to be prepared to stand in your uh, authentic space and your organic space and um, exude confidence in that moment. I think that's really what you have to do. You have to stand in that space and let people know, or those people who are interested in your personal sexuality, because I always said your sexuality is something that goes on in your bedroom. It's nobody else's business. But for societal reasons, I think you have to stand in that space. You have to be confident and you have to be competent. I mean, competent gives you confidence all the time. And I think that you have to be um, steadfast in your thinking and your believing. And you have to actually let people know that my sexuality is second nature to what I bring to the table, that I am smart, I am black, I am a male, I am gay, and you can compartmentalize those any way that you like. But at the end of the day, my sexuality does no, in no way define what my cerebral processes may be or what's in my heart. I always say to people, you can be led by your heart. We can overthink things a thousand times. You can be led by your heart because the heart tells us what's going on, but following your gut, I think that's what has allowed me to stand in the space that I've stood in. I was married. I came out of the marriage. I, I came out of the closet. I've been in a relationship now for 32 years, so over three decades. But that was a, a, a navigation that wasn't easy because it was also a negotiation with my family, with my friends. If I share this part of me with you, will you think differently about me? Will you treat me differently? Will you not want me around your children? Will you not want me around people who you love and respect? That's the line that you draw when you decide to come out. I've been talking to Kevin Brown. He's a former reporter and a director at the Station North Arts District. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We have to take a break, but don't you go away when we come back. A conversation with Heather Mazur. She changed the status quo when she ran as a gay candidate for governor of Maryland and is doing so again by running for Congress. You'll also hear what it's like to be a member of the transgender community. Before we go, how do you explain to the world you're different? A coming out story from Amber. My name is Amber Barnett and my pronouns are she, her, hers. I came out as an adult, so it was a little easier for me to navigate the conversations in terms of some of the backlash that is often rooted in power that exists for so many people in this community. And I recognize the privilege I have in that. For example, I did not have to worry about being kicked out of my house because when I came out, I was not dependent on anyone for housing, food, or other basic necessities. My father had a lot more to say than my mother did. <laughs> my mother said, oh yeah, it was almost like she knew. But my father had a lot more questions, many of which alluded to a belief that my sexuality is a choice. My grandmothers also had very polar responses. It's almost like I had to approach the conversation with my maternal grandmother as a zero-sum game. I told her that if she could not be open and accepting, I had no problem with that being our last conversation. She was speechless, which was unusual for her. On the other hand, my paternal grandmother's response was, well, if anybody has an issue with it, they can talk to me. <laughs> However, my coming out story is never ending. It happens daily with coworkers, strangers, and other people in my life. While I wish we could just live without the burden of coming out, my words to anyone who is not out yet are, it's okay. You and only you will know when you are ready. And if that time comes tomorrow, two years from now, 
or it never happens, I see you and I love you. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. On today's show, we're looking at the LGBTQ community. Joining me for this part of the conversation are Rain Alexander, an artist who happens to be transgender, and Jabari Lyles, an LGBTQ activist. But first up is Heather Mazur. She was the first openly gay candidate for governor of Maryland. Mazur is running for Congress in the 1st District. I am delighted to be joined by a longtime friend. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell us who you are? Hi, Charles. It's Heather Mazier. I'm a Democratic candidate for Congress in Maryland's 1st District. I want to begin with this. Heather, this is not the first time you've run for office. Tell me what your motivation is when you decide to put your name on the dotted line. Well, as you mentioned, um, I've run for office more than once, and what motivated me this time is much different than in years past. I've been a city council member, a member of the state legislature for eight years, and I ran for governor in 2014. Uh, Each and every time there are different issues or uh, things that I'm wanting to make an impact on that have deeply motivated me to, to put it all out there. And this particular race is somewhat unique in that I wasn't looking to run for office, but the events of January 6th and the way that my congressman responded to those events caused me to consider that I was being asked to to come back in to run for office once more and to give voters a clear alternative and, and a different choice for holding their congressman accountable for Uh, his participation in advancing the big lie in um, that the election was somehow stolen. He tried to pick a fistfight on the House floor on January 6th with a colleague at a moment when we should have been trying to heal. And I just believe that we deserve so much more than the embarrassment that Andy Harris has been. And I I am running for an opportunity to bring bold, fearless, and dignified leadership back to the 1st Congressional District. I want to ask about this part of your life that I think a number of people know you for is when you ran for governor. We had a previous guest on, and he talked about this whole idea that you're a part of the LGBTQ history of Maryland. Well, I I often said in my governor's race that I wasn't running to make history. I was running to make a difference. And yes, it is true that I um, was running not only to become Maryland's first woman governor, I would have been the first openly gay governor in the country. That has since happened in in other states in the intervening years. Um, Again, not my reason for running in this congressional race either, but both are true. I would be the first woman ever elected in the first congressional district and the first openly gay legislator as well um, in our in our congressional delegation. I know that you have seen this process evolve 
talk about that evolution, if you will. Mm, yeah, well, when I first started to advocate for full marriage equality for my family and families like mine across the state, I was seen as a, a liberal person who was pushing my Democratic Party to the left of where they wanted to be on this. Because if you backtrack to 2005, when I first started to engage politically on this issue, the Democratic Party was at best looking to do civil unions and having a separate and very unequal institution um, established for um, how gay and lesbian marriages or relationships would be viewed under the law. And my wife and I, when we got married in 2005, it was in Maryland, not with any of the protections that come from getting a state marriage license or certificate, but we did the part of the marriage that most people think a wedding is about, bringing your friends and your family together, pledging your vow to forever, and celebrating your love. But what a lot of people don't attached to the understanding is that it's that marriage certificate that protects our relationships in the most challenging of times. When we get sick, whether or not someone is allowed, whether our spouse is allowed to visit us in the hospital or uh, make burial decisions for us, or even ride in an ambulance when, when we are harmed. And those were the issues that when I was elected to the legislature, we were making the case for why all relationships should be protected equally under the law and that love is love. When we started out that journey in 2005, it was seen as an uphill battle and a radical proposition and that it would be something we would never succeed. And of course, fast forward to 2022 now, uh, it's just not even an, an issue any longer. It's been dealt with. Not only did we pass the law in Maryland and then affirm it at the ballot box by a citizen initiative in 2012, we have since through the Supreme Court uh, gained affirmation that all of our relationships are treated equally uh, under the law across the country. And it has been lightning speed with which this has happened. And uh, when I look back on, on where we were when we started those conversations and where we are now, it's a uh, progress that I really never dreamed was possible when we, when we began the effort. I want to talk to a future generation and I want you to explain to them what it means to be human and to, be, and to have an LGBTQ outlook. Well, What's interesting about your question, Charles, is that for future generations, I don't feel like it's so much an issue that we need to bring up. Um, it's, the, it's the youth that helped transform this topic. When I was in the legislature and we were struggling over how we would get the bills passed, I'll tell you what it came down to ultimately one year when we were just a handful of votes shy of having enough to pass the bill, and then the next year where we won by just a one or two vote threshold, the difference was legislators sharing stories about how their high school and college aged children were embarrassed that their parents were gonna be on the wrong side of history on this issue. 
and had meaningful conversations with them about what it means to just support anyone in their desire to love whomever they want and why equality matters as a part of our humanity. And so on the premise of the question, Charles, I would say, I don't think I need to tell future generations what is so important about the humanity of the, of the queer community because it's, it's the youth of now and, and, and the youth to come that continue to advance um, the, the beautiful conversation that allows us to evolve on this and have an open heart for, for everyone in our community. And I wanna thank your, your young listeners for, for their role in that historic win here in our state. Rain Alexander is an artist who just happens to be a member of the transgender community. Rain, let's talk a little bit. You're a transgender individual. Tell me what that means. Um, I'm a trans woman, and uh, that there's a lot of definitions that could be applied. I think you could ask almost any trans person, and they give you a different definition. So, uh, but mine is that uh, I was born um, and assigned male at birth, and uh, realized pretty quickly in my childhood that that really didn't fit, and uh, began seeking medical treatment uh, when I got into my teens and twenties. And uh, so, I came out of the closet about 30 years ago for the first time. And uh, you know, completed my medical transition. You know, the you know the surgeries and the hormones and things that uh, uh, it took to to medically transition. Um, I had my last surgery a few like five years ago, and uh, you know, feel great. Best thing I ever did. Let me ask you this question because I think your community is probably under threat than most other communities. Talk how you see that, if you will. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of threats that are out there. Um, you know, uh, I think the landscape has changed a lot. You know, since I've been out of the closet, you know, it used to be that uh, resources and, and just even meet like I didn't even meet my first other trans person until I was in my 20s. You know, even though I had known for many many years that was uh, that was how I identified. And um, but now you know we've got a lot more connectivity. The internet has brought us together, which is really great. Uh, but now visibility has really increased. And so there's a lot more awareness. Um, there's a lot of fear mongering. And, and of course, a lot of legislation has been put up against us. And, uh, you know, and I think that because there is a lot of anxiety around trans people culturally, um, you know, uh, we become, we often become a wedge issue. We, we become a, a community that kind of uh, activates people to get to the polls, you know, because they're like scared that, uh, you know, th- things are going to happen that would never, you know, that would ever in a million years really happen. You know, we've seen that in the past few years with the way, like, say, bathroom bills, you know, people having anxiety around, uh, you know, who gets to go into which public bathroom. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of us are like, well, if you just kind of like realize that trans people have been living amongst us for a long time that we've been using the bathrooms that we need to just to relieve ourselves, you know, this is, this is not, uh, this shouldn't be a wedge issue. And yet it is, you know, and it, it, uh, I think that, that uh, people's anxieties get animated by these things and, uh, you know, it allows, uh, it allows certain, uh, certain politicians to benefit on their other agenda items, you know, by, you know, by activating those anxieties. 
What do you think the public gets wrong about people in your community? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think that'll like vary um, uh, from person to person. And I think that, uh, and I think that has changed a lot over the years too. You know, it used to just be that like, uh, you know, there's awareness or there's this idea that uh, there weren't that many of us and, uh, you know, you'll never encounter us. And, um, but like, the thing is like, the systems have been in place to really repress uh, trans people for so long. And so now that there is so much awareness and there is, so much more access to resources and that, uh, you know, those restrictions are loosening a little bit. Um, you know, I think that there's this idea that maybe there's like more than ever before. And I would argue that it's kind of the same number as it always has been. It's just now we're in a position where more people are able to come out and uh, talk about the reality. Now, let's listen to Jabari Lyles, an LGBTQ advocate, as he navigated coming out. Jabari, let's begin with this. There's an, a unique navigation that people in that community have to walk. Tell us about that moment when maybe you decided you wanted to come out and what were some of the questions that you had to answer? Sure. I think it's important to remember as LGBTQ people, there often isn't just one moment of coming out that we have to come out multiple times throughout our lives based on the communities that we're in, coming out to our friends, our family, and our coworkers. Uh, so coming out is an experience that we have to think about a lot and um, determine when it's safe for us to come out. I know for me, I understood myself as a queer person from a really young age. I was probably about six, and I certainly didn't have language for it. I didn't know what the word gay or queer or any of those things meant. But I, I did get a sense that I, I loved differently. I showed up in the world differently. And I didn't necessarily see a lot of the people who were speaking openly about my experience. Um, I came out to my family when I was a teenager. I was about 16 in high school. And I grew up in a, a sort of religious family. We were Jehovah's Witnesses. And so I got a lot of messaging that being in the LGBTQ community was a sin, um, that it was a personal failure that it was something that wasn't welcome or wasn't appreciated, not only by society, but by religion. And so that was one of my first considerations with coming out is, is reconciling that messaging with my own personal happiness. Um, I was lucky to be in a family that I suppose their religious convictions and the love that they had for me, uh, they realized that those things maybe were inconsistent. And so I was really lucky to be in a family that when I did come out, they, they still surrounded me with love and respect. And certainly there were moments of learning and, and all of that, but I was really lucky to be in a family that still supported and affirmed me. Uh, so that was the first, I guess, big moment of coming out for my family. And I guess the second big moment is when I was a, a city school teacher. I was teaching elementary and middle school in Baltimore City. And I came out to my students and, you know, there are histories of queer educators that would have never been able to consider disclosing their gender or sexual identity to their students, but I knew that it was important. And so I did, and it was a powerful experience. I had some students clap and, you know, give me applause. There were some students who didn't really quite know how to react. And then there were some students who said that they were scared after, after me coming out. And I think that's really 
that's really indicative of the type of society we live in, where young people, uh, for some reason or another, are taught to be scared of LGBTQ people before they really even know who they are. So those are some of the two biggest moments for me uh, around coming out. Um, I think I'll lastly say on this question that I think it was Karamo Brown from Queer Eye who recently talked about reframing coming out as letting people in. So instead of us coming out and disclosing and this whole connotation around there's this big, you know, burning secret that we have, really when people decide to let others into their truth and to discern, you know, if you are someone who is worthy of understanding really who I am, then it's not really me coming out, it's me letting you in. And I think that that is a really important reframe um, and preserves a lot of the agency that we, that we seek to have in the LGBTQ community. I note that a lot of times your community doesn't have, I wanna say advocates, but as much as someone who could say, let me help you walk through this process. Help our audience understand that. Do you need a, a guide or do you just, you kind of just are, if you will? I think it's a little bit of everything. You know, so many of us in the LGBTQ community have been rejected by our families. And so while that's really painful, there is a beauty in what we call chosen family. We get to create our own family structures. And so, you know, we're able to rely on our elders and our peers and our siblings to really help us through when we understand ourselves to be LGBTQ. Whether people need that or not, uh, there are some folks who really do benefit from having uh, possibility models and leaders that they can look to as templates for how they've navigated the, the coming out experience. And for others, you know, like me, it was just always a very natural reality. And I think, you know, what's really beautiful about living in your own truth is when you are choosing your own happiness over everybody else's comfort. And there are some of us who can do that ourselves and there's some of us who need a little help. And so we've been able to create a really wonderful community of, of people who can reach out and it doesn't matter you know, how old you are, right? Like there are people who are still looking for coming out partners and, and possibility models you know, later in life in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. And you know, on the other side, we have young people who understand themselves as young as four, five, and six. Um, and so coming out is deeply personal and is, is customizable based on where you are in your situation. I note that, as you've just indicated, there are some people who will never, ever come out. Help us understand what that paradox is like. Yeah, I mean, you know, we still live in a world where it is not safe to be lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer. Sure, we have, you know, things like marriage equality and all these other non-discrimination laws that we're seeing at the state and local levels. But on the whole, it, it's still not safe for LGBTQ people. And so I think everyone gets to determine how and when and where they decide to live in that truth, but I can absolutely understand why there are some people who never feel as though they'll be able to exist in a world that embraces them the way they'd like. And I think, you know, there's a narrative where people think that we're hiding something or that we are lying and that, 
you know, we could be in the most supportive and affirming environments and still don't come out and folks don't understand why that is. Um, and I think that what that does is it, it places a lot of blame on us as queer folks and it doesn't necessarily examine the world that we live in and all the external factors that might go into whether or not someone is ready to come out. Um, and so I always say, you know, coming out is deeply personal. It happens at any time in anyone's life. And I can certainly understand why folks would, would choose not to. I want to end on this, if you will, Jabari. Think of yourself as a young person. And you're confronted with all these imageries, as you've already indicated. What's the pluses and minuses of saying, I am who I am? Yeah, well, gosh. First of all, the pluses. Everyone on this earth deserves to live in the fullest capacity of who they are. And when we are able to access whatever that is, whether we are LGBTQ or whatever identities we have, you know, everyone deserves that. And so when folks are able to arrive at a place of comfort, a place of celebration of themselves, that's a beautiful moment. And so we want to create a world where anyone who is LGBTQ would feel comfortable in living in that truth. Um, we're not there yet, but we are working towards that. And so there is a real uh, celebration, a personal euphoria that happens when you're able to do that. I think also when you decide to get up in the morning and walk around the world as an openly queer person, you are also opening up yourself to a lot of violence and discrimination and mistreatment. And for some of us, that's just too much to bear, that the juice isn't necessarily worth the squeeze, if you will. And so I think having balanced perspectives about people's decisions to come out is important. And we celebrate those who do, and we surround ourselves around them and embrace them. But we also hold space for those who feel like that is not, that's not their path. I've been talking to Rain Alexander and former delegate Heather Mazur and Jabari Lyles, an LGBTQ activist. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We have to take another break, but don't you go anywhere. When we come back, we'll hear from the new interim director at the Pride Center of Maryland. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong What's next? How do you begin to tell someone you're different? For some, it's a secret. For others, it's an awakening they wanted all their life. A place to start a conversation about sexuality if you don't have anyone to confide in is the Pride Center of Maryland. We talk with its CEO, Cleo Monago. First of all, Cleo, let, let's start with... Uh, the Pride Center of Maryland. It was an amalgamation of different groups that came together to create this group. So why don't you give us a little bit of the historical background of it? The Pride Center was once called the Gay Center when it started in the early 70s. Then it later added the L to, make, to empower women and bring women into the discussion. So it became the GLL, Gay Lesbian Center. 
And one thing that's important to um, consider, it was predominantly white people who were doing this formulation of the organization. It had a Black woman whose name escapes you right now, who was part of the crew. The dominant culture that wound up taking over the organization was pretty much white men and, in that order, women. So the organization also started to get more momentum around the time in the early 80s when the HIV AIDS issue hit us. And the HIV AIDS issue was killing people left and right, particularly homosexual and bisexual men. So um, a lot of what drove the work for the organization's existence, along with empowering homosexual and bisexual people, was making sure that people had a safe space to go to deal with HIV and AIDS and to try to deflect the horror of all that dying and, and chaos that was going on when people did not know what was going on. They just found their friends dying. Unfortunately, and this is typical when it comes to LGBTQ culture, this is pre- predominantly white people, white concerns, a white cultural paradigm that is pretty much leading the charge and Black people, particularly from a cultural perspective, get alienated. As a matter of fact, um, the organization now known as the Price Center of Maryland, which was once called GLCCB, had a history of being of alienating Black people. And as a matter of fact, my first involvement with the organization was in 2015. And I was asked by the chairman of the board, um, Jabari Lyles, and by the executive director at the time, his name was Kenneth Morrison, to come to the organization and help make it more conducive to African-American response and involvement, which was important because the Black community was being neglected while this organization was existing. And the crises, including HIV, that the community was facing in particular was not being properly or effectively addressed. So I came in to help bring in some cultural competence, some cultural consideration, and some structural focus on how to make African-American people feel more comfortable with using the agency because before I came, the Black community felt alienated. And that's important to address because Baltimore is over 60% Black. And while that was the case, the center was not able to be responsive to that. I want to talk a little bit about uh, definitions and how people identify. That has been a fluid movement. Talk about how that has changed over time. In the late 60s, a guy named Harry Hay encouraged a mass of people to use the word gay as part of a political moniker as it prepared to organize itself and resist the extreme homophobia in the society. You may know or find out now that it was dangerous to be a homosexual um, before the 70s. You could be locked up, put in jail, murdered. Um, Discrimination was serious. And the lack of law and justice in reaction to being murdered, accosted, oppressed, for being homosexual, there was not a lot of um, protection. That's changed a whole lot because the gay community was quite serious about protecting itself, defending itself, and creating legislation that would protect it. But again, these are primarily white people who are in the forefront of this and doing this. Getting back to your question around identity, the word gay was came out of France, out of gay body. And then later, because of patriarchy and discriminating against women, women felt um, unseen and um, not acknowledged. So the word lesbian was added to the um, identities around the early 70s. And I don't know if you know that lesbian came out of the term lesbos, which is an island outside of Greece. And the symbolism for many years for the gay community was the pink triangle. 
The pink triangle came from Germany because that's what Hitler put on homosexuals who who he gassed on with other people that were being murdered. They got the pink triangle, which became another part of how this this community's genesis. And what's interesting to know is that the black community did not feel an affinity to the white community in this gay movement. As a matter of fact, James Baldwin, who we all have heard of, never joined the gay movement and never became a part of that movement because he saw it as racist and being a black freedom fighter and someone concerned about justice and who was against racism, he did not join the gay community. They tried to pull him in because of his celebrity, but he, he, he wouldn't do it because of the racism. So while the gay and lesbian community was developing itself, black people using terms like, are you in the life? Are you family? Are you one of the children? These are the terms that black people used. Um, to identify each other because gay just did not seem to be something that we resonated with. And then um, in the early 90s, a term same gender loving came into being for Black people. The intentionality for same gender loving was to create a way of referencing ourselves that was considered of Black history, considered of Black culture, and that affirmed being Black and that was not simply a byproduct of the white gay movement with the triangles, et cetera, all that came out of Europe, France. Even the word queer, which I'm sure you've heard before more recently, is from Britain. It's a British slang term. So again, a European ethos is, is the foundation, but this ethos doesn't necessarily affirm Black people, which gets back to the Pride of Maryland historically not affirming Black people and my work to make it diverse and affirming of everyone, including white people, including Latino people including people of Asian descent, et cetera. Um, I'm making sure that it's very concentrated on diversity in a very real way, as opposed to being multicultural white racism. I want to kind of ask you to take a pulse of where the organization is. Tell me where you are, combination of socially, politically, if you will. Well, I'm glad to say that the organization um, particularly compared to its recent past, is doing quite well. We were able to take it from a struggle around its finances last year to being a $3 million organization now with almost 30 personnel. And we have services that are dealing with sexual health, dealing with what I call self-conceptual health, teaching same-gender loving, bisexual, LGBTQ people, et cetera, to love themselves and affirm themselves and learn learn to be comfortable who they are so they can take good care of themselves, particularly with health threats lingering like HIV. We also have a program that focuses on older people called the SAGE program that deals with elders. We have programs focused on youth. We have programs focused on substance abuse, prevention, reduction, and care and interaction. We have programs for parents, of same-gender-loving, bisexual, sexual minority people, so they could teach them to be more supportive and more and less um, in conflict with their children, who they don't understand, and, and try to reduce conflict between parents and children of same-gender-loving people. We have a um, diversity and equity program where we do cultural competency in the school system, in corporations, churches, all over the place to get people to learn and demystify who same-gender-loving, bisexual, LGBTQ, sexual minority people are. We have programs for trans people called Trans Baltimore, which helps to provide safe space, um, mental health services, et cetera, to get people who are dealing with trans experience to become more safe and less threat, have less threats to their lives, including violence. We are also, I'm excited to announce, opening up a new 7,000 square foot complex 
uh, next month um, in um, the Charles Village area. And our 7,000 square foot complex will have classrooms. We will have a digital lounge. We will have a sports studio and an athletic studio to teach people cardiovascular care, self-defense, dance, fitness, nutrition. Um, it's been a lot of growth, a lot of very powerful growth of the organization over the past two years under my uh, leadership, I'm, I'm proud to say. One of the things I know is, is that sexuality seems to be at the forefront. A lot of people forget to remember that you're human beings. Can you talk to that? That is a very complex issue. Um, it depends on who's looking because everything is political. How, we, how we're seen or not seen is based on somebody's politics. But in an attempt to be less verbose and get to the point, of course we're human. Everybody with eyeballs can see that we're human. However, we live in a society that on one end is sex-phobic. For example, there's a lot of people who don't talk to their children about sexuality, period, who don't provide any guidance on how to be sexually safe and self-protecting, period. So whether you're a same gender loving person or heterosexual person in this society, sometimes you have to learn from mistakes how to have a healthy sexuality. Um, it's important to see us as human, but what's important to me is that we see ourselves as human. A phenomenon that you might have heard of is internalized oppression. There's internalized oppression among Black people who don't feel good about being Black. There's internalized oppression among same gender loving bi, sexual and gender minority people who don't feel good about their sexuality because we live in a society that marginalizes and judges people in a negative way for being who they are. It's my perspective that when people learn to love themselves in their own image and develop a positive, healthy self-concept, that, that some, how somebody else sees them or doesn't see them becomes irrelevant. How they see themselves and how they walk in the world and how they show up with self-respect and dignity becomes more powerful than somebody's personal opinion. I want you to look ahead, forecast for our audience a little bit about what the future looks like for the LGBTQ community? Well, from my perspective, that would include same gender loving people as well as the LGBTQ community. I think that what's wonderful and unique about the pricing of Maryland, which happens to be in a predominantly black community, that we're in a position to make sure that going forward, that how we're served, seen, treated, cared about, our options for service, are affirming and are inclusive and respectful ways of everybody, and not just in superficial ways. Um, and the future of this community, based on the trajectory of the president of Maryland, is that people who are Black, who are white, who are Latino, who are Asian, who are Native, who are decent, who need support and help, will have a powerful option that will help them to not only learn to love themselves in their own image, but to respect differences. As I said before, a lot of the people that were leading a lot of what's called LGBTQ has been white and have been sincere about resolving their own struggle, but had tunnel vision regarding being culturally inclusive and creating safe space and consideration for the vast amount of people culturally and indigenously who are same gender loving or homosexual and bisexual. So we plan on leading the way as a statewide organization on a national level to talk about the importance of actual authentic inclusion on these issues, as opposed to, frankly, multicultural whiteness. LGBTQ, the triangle, 
the rainbow flag, all those things you've seen before are not necessarily representative of all cultures and all people. Our work is making sure that what you see in here is actually inclusive and respectful of everybody. Tell me, what is it that you want the general public to know about what you do? I want the general public to know that the Pride Center of Maryland provides options for the empowerment, protection, health and well-being of sexual and gender minorities in the state of Maryland, but it's not a island of exclusion. We actively work with the whole community. We actually work with heterosexual people, all kinds of people, because our goal is not to be some island somewhere of sex and gender minorities. Our goal is to continue to normalize ourselves among the human family, to normalize ourselves as part of how we live life and how and how we show up. And we actively invite and work with all kinds of people so we can build community, build bridges, and demystify ourselves to reduce conflict and, and ignorance and getting back to your word, human, to help to humanize ourselves among people who are ignorant or misinformed, but not only for ex people external to the community, but to human ourselves to ourselves. Because if you come from a, a background or a family that constantly marginalized, criticized, or sent you to hell, it's difficult to love yourself when you have older people or influential people perpetually throwing your self-worth into question. Well, our work is about shifting that and creating an empowering place for self-discovery, self-love, and, and bridge building across the human spectrum. I've been talking to Cleo Monago. He's the CEO of the Pride Center of Maryland. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We have to take one more break, but don't you go away. When we come back, a couple of thoughts on the LGBTQ community. Our last coming out story comes from Rain Alexander, a transgender woman. Can you share with us your coming out story, if you will? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, uh, you know, there, there's endless coming out stories that, uh, you know, that, that exist, especially when you've been out as long as I have been. Um, but uh, I think the one that, uh, the one that's, most important is that, you know, I went off to college in the 80s and having never met another trans person and really like not really knowing where to get resources, you know, I basically one of the agenda items that I had when I went to college was to go to the library and figure it out. You know what I mean? I had a word. I had like some basic information that I had gotten from like my home public libraries, but I really wanted to like, I just wanted to know more. And, uh, and I was so terrified of like telling that first person, you know, and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to, uh, going to do that. And, um, went to college and, uh, within a month had, uh, met a couple of really great people, including one that I, I was spending a lot of time with her. And, uh, one day I was taking a nap in her dorm room and, uh, woke up and she had she was a snoopy kind of a person. So she had snooped into some of my, uh, uh, some of the writing that I had done and, uh, where I had like, talked about like, uh, you know, my, my hopes and my fears about being trans. And, uh, she's like, I know, basically I know your secret and I think that it's great. Do you want to try on some clothes? Like, do you want to learn how to use makeup? Like she was like, really, like really engaged, which was super progressive and shocking for 
something like for that to happen in 1987 was like, ooh, kind of a mind blowing thing. Like I thought this was the most horrendous secret. Uh, it was going to be met with all kinds of like uh, derision and maybe violence. And, you know, uh, I would never have any friends. Like these were all my fears, of course. And uh, the very first person that I came out to was like, you know what? It's great. Let's figure it out. With you. you know, you and me, let's figure this out. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. These inspiring folks remind us of the fluid nature of what it means to be human. Your worth in this community should not be based upon how you express your gender or the people that you love. As challenging as it might be, you get to own your identity, and that's something you can't be pressured out of. The LGBTQ community continues to transform as people move beyond the rigid nature of society to allow people to freely express who they are to the fullest sense. They become game changers, history makers, community leaders, friends, and more. Thank you to today's guests for sharing their stories and bearing their truths. Feature City is produced and edited by Spencer Bryant. This month, we had a pair of consultants, Amber Barnett and Rebecca Robinson. Thanks for the assist. We had a lot of material we wanted to add, but we were constrained by time. You can listen to extended conversations with all of our guests and find out more about the causes they support by visiting WYPR.org and search for Future City. You know we welcome your feedback, and you can always email us with your thoughts and questions about the show at Future City, that's one word, at WYPR.org. Until next time, I'm Charles Robinson for 88.1 WYPR and my producer, Spencer Bryant, and everyone who makes Future City possible. We hope your dreams of tomorrow become a reality. I'm your host, Charles Robinson.